you have your Bibles, turn to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. You ever have a chance to see someone from the outside? As a parent, I think we've seen this many times when we're watching our children growing up, we see them do something that almost causes humor to us. We see them trip, which is funny sometimes as a parent, depending on whether it's a father or mother, I guess, right? But at times, what we also see is the stumble of another believer, another person that we know personally. Maybe it's an argument you saw going on in front of you that you couldn't help but wonder, how could that person be so cruel? You see, at different times in our lives, we're given opportunities to see many situations from the outside looking in. And we, th- we see things more clearly than the person many times in that situation. We didn't even know that we come across the way we did until someone came by and told us the truth. Well, today we're going to be looking at just one of the three things described as God looks at the state of Jerusalem which is outright ignored and rebelled against him and his judgment of them. We're going to be looking at only the first one out of these three today. This is the second lament of Jeremiah. Number one, we'll be looking at the limits of mercy, verses one through three. Number two, and this will be next week, the assumption of friendship, verses four through five. And number three, the loss of connection, verses six through 10. So let's start with number one, the limits of mercy, verses 1 through 3. How the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his, his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has brought them down. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around. You see, one of the traps the people of God fall into is that they believe that God's mercy is endless, which means that we can continue to receive His blessings and disregard His warnings. The things that are most precious to God that we see here in this text, the people of Israel, along with the city of Jerusalem and His his footstool, which is in essence the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was to dwell, in His anger He thrones down from a glorious splendor to utter rubble and destruction. This temple considered God's footstool, which is essentially where God's feet rest, where heaven touches earth, if you will. And we see that also in other passages like 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 through 3, where David's planning to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant which he couldn't, being a man of war. Let's look at these verses really quick. 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 through 3. Here's what it says. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. 
I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. The presence of God was important to the people of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was a demonstration of this. The point of the temple was to remind people of God's presence and the humility that we are to come before God with. Listen to what God tells Isaiah about the importance of the state of the heart. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. This verse right here, especially the last part in verse 2, should remind us of the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks of. The poor in spirit. Those that have a humility before God regarding their own sin. The truth is, church, just as the nation of Israel, so we fall into the trap that thinking that mercy doesn't have its limitations. Mercy of God has limitations. And just because the children of Israel had the temple didn't mean that God was going to endlessly prosper them as a nation. In fact, it says in verse 2 back in Lamentations that God destroyed every house in Israel. And guess which other one He destroyed? What you and I would consider His own house, the temple. His mercy had run out and judgment came. The truth is, sin affects around us as well. Those around us are affected by our own sin. One of the difficulties in communicating truth to the people of God in the day that we live in is whenever a pastor or teacher of God reminds people of the judgment of God, they are looked as some doomsday prophet because the only part that people want to hear of is God's love and endless mercy. But that's only part of the truth. That's not the whole truth. Unfortunately, by telling the people of God only the mercy of God, the discipline of God is either outright avoided or distorted to mean that God is just simply testing your faith rather than God possibly judging with severity His own. This is not to say that there may not be a final salvation in the future, but there is most definitely a chastening and judging that may occur in the life of a believer. In case you're thinking, well, this is just an Old Testament thing, and you know, in the Old Testament, God was very much like this. In the New Testament, it's about love and joy and peace, and that means that there's no consequences whatsoever for sin. Let's take a look at a few verses out of the New Testament for those that claim that the New Testament is very different. By the way, we're actually going to read this later on as we partake of the Lord's Supper. But right now, let's read this from the New Living Translation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the church of Corinth is participating in an unworthy manner when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They are treating it 
as if it's not important, as if it's not sacred, which I would dare say much of the church takes the things of God and doesn't treat them as sacred anymore. So listen to what it says here in this text. This is Paul speaking to the church of Corinth, starting verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord Himself. On the night when He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then He broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and His people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until He comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is to believers. This is why, that is why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you don't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. Every follower of Jesus Christ is to examine themselves. Whether they're honoring the sacrifice of Christ in a literal way when partaking of the Lord's Supper, or even in a practical way in the way that they live. There is judgment due to our lax stance on the sacrifice of Christ that is guaranteed and promised in Scripture. Keep trifling with the things of God and see if God does not bring judgment. Discipline will be applied. The consequences were severe in the time of the Corinthians, and they're still, still applicable today. In fact, there's literally a physical breakdown due to the lack of self-examination these believers did not have. The Corinthians experienced discipline to the point of death. Now, Pastor Roman, that's just in regards to the Lord's Supper. I understand we need to take that sacred. So, you know, a lot of Christians at least take that part seriously, right? We at least, for that one day, we take it seriously. Well, that's not the only thing the text of judgment is referring to because there are other texts of Scripture that we're going to look at here in a moment. In fact, Romans 8, the famous chapter that everybody loves quoting the end of it, you know, we, all, we know that all things work together for good. Well, before we get to that in that chapter, mind you, this is a full letter that Paul writes. There are specific warnings that are addressed and mentioned. Let's read these words. In Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. 
Therefore, brethren, this is believers we're talking about. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Listen to this next phrase that Paul uses. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is to brethren. We've got to make sure the context is right. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. There's a severity with which believers need to take their walk with God, realizing that life and death are actually in the balance. There's a sense in which a Christian that gives up the fight against the flesh needs to know the severity of death may be waiting around the corner. The tension for the pastor is encouraging the weak Christian while also not providing a false sense of security for one that thinks he's a part of the fold that doesn't have the Spirit of God abiding in him. As we can see, the judgment of God is not just reserved for the children of Israel. It applies to every person, believer and non-believer. Although the end result may be different in eternity, both can suffer the exact same consequences in this life. I don't know why we as Christians think we'll get a pass because we have eternity secured that in this life God's axiomatic truths that are spelled out are still not going to work out the way that He promised. In case you're thinking, well, I'm secure, I'm saved, I've trusted Christ, here's some truths to really chew on for all of us. First one is, going off subjective reasoning ends in disaster. That's for every person on this planet, whether they know Christ or don't. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You want to go off of your subjective reasoning, what you think is right, or what you feel is right? That'll end in disaster if it's not lined up with the Word of God. We think we all have the answers at times. But sometimes we're completely wrong and the consequences can very much be very deadly. Messing around with what makes you happy will not necessarily help in your holiness. In fact, it won't make you a more holy believer many times. It'll only lead you on the path of destruction when you're pursuing your own happiness. Now, if that happiness is found in God and in Christ, that's a different matter altogether. The end result of our pursuit of happiness, though, can end in utter disaster. Another truth, and I know you know this because you've seen it in your own life, you get what you put in. You get what you put in. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8, many of us have heard this text. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This is such an obvious one, 
But I don't understand why we are so shocked many times by the results of certain things in our life that we've planted years ago. When we look back where it all started, we should see why we've ended where we have. You want to raise a God-honoring parents, uh, God-honoring family parents? One hour a week at church is not going to be able to pull that off for you. While they're indoctrinated with all sorts of filth throughout the week. Every one of us should constantly be aware that today we are sowing something and also reaping something. Both are going on at the same time in our lives right now. There's something that you're planting that you're going to reap later on. And right now you're reaping something you planted years ago. Every one of us should constantly be aware of that. That sometimes those sins that we thought we really did get over... pop right back up. And the truth is, we never really took care of it. You know how we take care of a lot of our sins? I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to pretend I really don't struggle with that. And by avoiding it, it lasts for a couple days. But before you know it, it's back. And sometimes it's even back with a vengeance, is it not? Sometimes that falls a lot harder than we thought it would be. And here's the part that I think is really stunning, is we're shocked. I can't even believe those words came out of my mouth. What were you listening to this last week? A lot of God's Word? What were you reading a lot this last week? God's Word? Were you in fellowship with other saints? Did you find the things of God to be a priority? And you're shocked that the flesh came out? Essentially what the text is saying, and this is what happens to a lot of Christians, don't think that God will allow himself to be ridiculed by you assuming that the things that he promised will happen will happen. A lot of Christians try to mock God in that way. Ah, God will give me a pass. It won't be me. It'll always be some other brother or sister that deals with the consequences of their choices. But me, I'm going to get a pass. God knows me. I'm okay. Here's another truth, and this is one that a lot of us can relate to that are a little more outgoing. Always speaking your mind isn't wise. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. (laughs) There's always someone you want to give a piece of your mind to, isn't there? There's always somebody that, oh man, I can't wait to tell them what I really think. And how many times has that gone disastrously? Scripture says there is wisdom in holding back in your reaction to others. In fact, it's quite potent sometimes when a person who seemingly has something to get angry over walks away without saying a word and thinks before they speak. If you're one of those, I just tell people what I really think types, 
might want to consider this verse. Not everything that's in your head needs to come out of your mouth. Why just wear my heart on my sleeve? Could be dangerous. And please don't be the friend that encourages this behavior. Just let me know. Let it all out. Because some of us are on the other end of this, and we encourage this garbage to come out. The fool is completely revealed when we go, tell me everything. You don't want to know. God knows. And let him deal with some of those things sometimes. It also doesn't say, for those of you that don't share anything, that you're supposed to let it stay inside at all times either. That's not what it says. None of this verse says, keep it in, be mature. That's not what it says. There's a difference between the two extremes, the let it all out and hold it all in. And neither one of those is the approach in this text. A wise person knows what they should and shouldn't share, how they should communicate those things. That's why it's important for those of us that are, I want to deal with it today, I want to get it off my chest, to be more patient with some things and wait maybe a few days. And those of us that kick the can down the road infinitely and we never deal with problems, to deal with them in a timely fashion still too. Both require wisdom, both groups of people. Now back in Lamentations 2 though, the result is clear with Israel's disregard for the holiness of God. God did not spare even his temple in his judgment. You want my presence, Israel? You want to mock me? You want to disregard all the things that I have told you? I'm destroying my temple as well. I will not inhabit the praises of a stubborn, rebellious people. God essentially told the nation of Israel, you don't hollow my name, your sacred place of worship will be taken down because you don't worship me in the way that I commanded. The abuse of God's grace will bring about an end to the protection of God's hand. Any believer that wants to abuse God's grace should realize that the protection that they have in the hand of Christ and God the Father may be removed. Oh, your eternal security is intact. But your consequences in this life can very well play out the way you don't want. And unfortunately, what Christians have done is they've argued for the fact that because I'm eternally secure, the consequences are going to be avoided in this life too. That's not true. Eternity is determined by whether we stand in Christ or not. In this life, what we do does matter. And the consequences will play out in the way that we live. The result for Israel was the removal of all protection, leaving the enemy open to go ahead and take over the nation of Israel. 
God is essentially guarding His own when they trust Him and obey Him. But when they want to go do their own thing and live their own way, He lets them go off as a prodigal and deal with the consequences of their own choices. God is not obligated to protect His children from poor choices they make. He's never obligated. God graciously sometimes protects us from even more severe consequences. But none of those things are guaranteed. And God is long-suffering. But there will be a point where He lets the consequences play out in our lives. Just as He did with the nation of Israel. God will not protect His own from the consequences of each choice to rebel against clear principles taught in His Word. God would not be a just God if He did not take what He says in His Word and make sure that it applies properly to each person. Just because you and I have received grace and we have mercy for eternity does not mean that the consequences of sin in this life do not matter. God's anger against the nation of Israel is very real. And it's described throughout this book of Lamentations. Church, just as for them, so for us, in the midst of justice and judgment, there is grace to be found. Unfortunately, many of us take that grace and abuse that grace and wonder why God is still judging us. We disregard what God has done. We disregard that we're children of Christ, children of God and followers of Christ. And God will not allow His children to live any way they please. His standards are not your standards. And He's not letting you play the comparison game between your brother or sister in the church and saying, well, I'm performing better, God, are you okay with me? The standard isn't them, it's this. In the midst of judgment, there is grace. But grace does not erase the possibility of consequences for the sinful choices that we've made. The thief on the cross, though he trusted Christ, still had to die. The consequences for his sins, he didn't get to avoid. Oh, he met Christ in paradise. But he still had to go through the consequences. Israel was left defenseless against the Babylonian army, looking to invade, and essentially all of the Babylonians were doing was what God had already ordained them to do, which be an instrument of judgment. God used them to work out his fierce anger against his own people. Next week, we're going to be looking at the assumption of friendship and the loss of connection. But in closing, I want to ask you a question that when I had to ask myself this question, put me in a very uncomfortable position. Are you testing the limits of mercy? Are you testing the limits of mercy? Have you found yourself casual in your walk with God? 
I've been doing this church thing for a while. I read the Bible. Have my friends that go to church as well. Have we gotten a little too casual in our walk with God? So much so that you'd think that God would only bring severe consequences to others and you're safe. Oh, God will take care of them. They really have the problems. They really sin a lot. Me, I'm okay. It's not as severe. Do you take for granted the mercy extended to you by the blood of Christ? Do you remember what it means to have all your sins covered? The price that was really paid for that? Does it register in our minds many times? Or do you find yourself just abuse the grace that God's given you? Everybody talks about abuse right now. It's the big new church buzzword. Abuse. I argue that we abuse the grace of God way more than any of us would we readily admit. Although there are devastating things that have been done in the name of Christ. But what's even more appalling is just as God dealt with the priests and the, and the leaders in, in nations that would tell people falsehoods, what many of us are not being called out for is the abuse of grace. The abuse of grace is not something God would want us to trifle with. It's to be taken seriously. Maybe you're someone that could care less about the mercy of God. You think you've got it made. You don't need anyone to tell you that God should tell you what to do. Please hear me out. If you're watching this online, judgment is coming and it's very near. All the fear that you have on TV pales in comparison to what's awaiting for those that don't know Christ. It pales in comparison. The judgment of God is way more severe than any plague that man can participate in. The righteous judgment of God should give us a reverential awe for the holiness of God. You see, the enemies of God are essentially made a footstool for the sun. Look up the word footstool. There's an amazing, amazing study you could do on that. Truth is, the enemies of God are made a footstool for the Son because we are less than He is. He is over us. Which is why we need to come before God with humility and not with a, you owe me something. I did this for you, God. You owe me. You deserve nothing that God gives you out of His grace. You only deserve judgment. I only deserve judgment. Always love what Jonathan Edwards says when it comes to your salvation. What have I contributed to my salvation? The sin that made it necessary. That's what I contributed. Those that mock the Son, Jesus Christ, will one day be crushed under His righteous judgment. 
Listen to this prophetic messianic psalm as we close. And take heed to the warning and encouragement found in this text, depending on which side of the equation you are on. Psalm 2, verses 11 through 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. But it doesn't stop there. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. If God is your defender, you put your trust in Him. If He is the one that saved you, you put your trust in Him. If you are in opposition to Him, realize the danger you're in. Here's what's unfortunate. Many believers many times live in opposition to the very God that saved them. And they disregard what He says. May we be those that are blessed because we put our trust in Him. And we live in obedience to the things that He's commanded.